The following is for information purposes only and should not be used for the purposes of making an investment decision. It is not investment advice. The following is made possible by Progressive Equity Research. For more information, please visit progressiveequityresearch.com. A few weeks ago, James Wilson of Phoenix Asset Management joined me for a conversation with Tony Brewer, the founder and CEO of Likewise Group. James had talked about Tony and his investment in the AIM-listed company on a previous episode, and I'd been keen to get Tony on ever since. Tony has spent his entire adult life in the floor coverings business, developing Headlam from a small textile distributor to become the UK's leading flooring supplier before leaving in 2016. Two years later, at a time when many of us might consider slowing down, Tony set up Likewise and set about building national distribution. As James points out, this is a business where scale matters. James is an investor who leaves few stones unturned when he seeks companies to join his concentrated and eclectic portfolio. With his questioning and observations, James brings to life the investment case for what one might believe to be an overly competitive and low-value-added business. This episode offers a fascinating insight into a man with a passion for carpet distribution and the views of a professional investor backing him to succeed. Please enjoy our conversation with the maverick, Tony Brewer. So hi, Tony, and thanks for joining us today. Just wanted to start by asking you just to talk a little bit about yourself, your background, and how you got into this floor coverings business. So I started in the floor covering industry in 1977 at a business called Midland Carpet Distributors based in Kidderminster and really learned the business from the warehouse, telesales, product, the logistics work. In 1977, of course, there wasn't much IT, but as we developed IT, understanding of that. And I think that reflects the people we've got in the business across the UK now. They've come through a similar channel, probably not from 1977, hopefully later years, but they understand the flooring trade from, let's say, the shop floor, from warehouse and transport, the product manufacturer relationship, and obviously, importantly, customers. So I developed through that and furthered my career. Then, along with two colleagues who are sadly both no longer with us, Graham Walter and Ian Kirkham. We took a stake in Headlam as a small textile distributor in 1991 and set about making that into a large floor and distribution business, principally in the UK, but also in France, Holland and Switzerland. I left Headlam in 2016 and along with some other senior colleagues established likewise in 2018 and we've since built that business to be annualised sales now of about 150 million, 11 locations throughout the UK and with aspirations to grow a much bigger business. What is it about the floor coverings market that you obviously become so passionate about and so you find so interesting? doesn't sound particularly exciting. You're cutting up bits of carpet, aren't you? Well, we're, we're, buying, um, we're buying full containers of various types of floor covering. We're known as a carpet business. It is still the large individual part, but we also distribute residential vinyl, artificial grass, laminate, 
luxury vinyl tile, flooring accessories, and all types of commercial flooring as well. So anything that goes on the floor, with the exception really of ceramic and stone, then we're involved in the distribution of. Now, we've got relationships literally across the world in terms of with suppliers where we're buying product in bulk. We're marketing those products through various types of sample material that we position into independent retailers. The retailer then sells to the consumer and we supply from typically if you take four rolls of carpet being 30 meters long and either four or five meters wide we're then cutting the room size length required by the manufactured width and supplying that to the retailer the following day and we run a fleet of over 130 vehicles which allows us to do that and as i said earlier operating from 11 distribution centers and i originate from kidderminster which was one of the key homes of carpet manufacturing going back to the 70s and um, sadly that's no longer the case albeit obviously victoria is still technically based in kidderminster but it's now worldwide floor covering business so kind of carpet is in my blood i guess you'd say and floor covering generally and it's just what i've done for you know the last 40 plus years if I, I jump in here quickly, if that's all right, you've, you've expressed a, f- a few really interesting little nuggets about the business there. And I suppose as a, you know, seven or eight years ago before I, I did, did the work on the flooring business, I thought, well, it's just flooring. Surely it just goes from one place to the other. But the more you get into it, the more you realize how incredibly complex it is. And so, Tony, this might be a slightly rudimentary question, but could you explain a little bit about how important next day delivery is in your business and, and why and how you manage the element of seasonal demand and, and how you sort of fit this all in with the demands of the big manufacturers who you're constantly negotiating? with and who want visibility because that's that's a really difficult logistical job i think next day delivery service is just an accepted feature of the industry you can argue when the consumer buys from a retailer are they getting it fitted the following day or two probably not to be honest I see the overall service as a much bigger picture. It's one as sourcing the latest floor covering products from the key manufacturers, a lot of which are in Western Europe for residential, but also further afield for other products. And as sourcing that product, making sure the retailer is up to date with the latest textures and colours, and that we're putting new sampling into those retailers. All of this is part of the service. Hundreds and thousands of displays into retailers giving them that selection to you know enable them to compete against the multiple and you know making sure they're up to date with those latest products and then us having the stock holding we're carrying just over 20 million pounds worth of stock across our 11 distribution centers and making sure we've got stock to be able to service that retailer and that next day service is just a feature as i've said it's just the last part of that chain really before we get paid of course and of course, if next day delivery is, is standard on this very big, bulky, sort of difficult to deliver item, then the minimum efficient scale is actually quite high. So in order to provide that service, you need quite a lot of business already to make it worthwhile sending the lorry out. And so there's, there's a scale element to this business, which you've managed to, to sort of build really quickly. But likewise, I mean, blistering speed, two or three years and you're above 100 million of sales. And I suppose a big part of that's been acquisition and it seems like going through the sort of flicking through the acquisitions you've done it looks like those businesses sold to you because it was you and knew how to look after their life's work and the people that have been working there for decades sort of in a i may be projecting here a berkshire hathaway type way so can you kind of tell us how you found those acquisitions how you found them so quickly or how they found you because we've been in the industry so long, those businesses are known to us, and it's typically you know a meeting with the owner. You know these these deals are often agreed very quickly, bizarrely. That um, you know, whether it be the heat seam factory flooring acquisition, which gave us the platform for residential products, or uh, whether it be the Valley acquisition, or equally Delta more recently. You know, I think we've got a, a metric on on what we believe we should be paying for businesses, and you know, it can be agreed quite quickly if we believe we're in the right place. 
and we're being fair yeah. in terms of the multiple of, of earnings or relative to the asset base of the business. I think that the deals we've done being agreed quite quickly, obviously, then there's the legal process to go through and sometimes the, the fundraising process that we've had to be able to, to make those acquisitions. But the actual striking the deal, so to speak, has been done, I would say, quite quickly in most cases. They're not long negotiations because I think we've got a price position in the right place and it's where the probably the vendor expects us to be as well. And I guess to, to James's point, these people would feel more comfortable passing their business and its stakeholders to someone they knew and trusted than perhaps a, I don't know, just a private equity buyer who's just in it for the financial return. Possibly. I mean, um, it's nice of you to say, but it, it's all about a, f- a fair price, I think. And also, to a degree, the vendor believing that we will keep their business intact and, and in yes. many cases separate. I mean, it's not always separate. In Valley, definitely we keep it separate from their three locations and it's not integrated whatsoever into likewise. Whereas with Delta, it suited the, the owners. When they were selling the business, they owned the property separately. We were able to ex- exit that property moved the business to our location in, in Leeds, which was three or four miles from their location, but still keep that Delta presence in the marketplace. We've had the, this period of acquisitions where you've got a lot of scale very, very quickly and profitably. You, you mentioned in a few of the updates to investors that you're, you're kind of looking at organic growth now. How are you going to go about that organic growth? What do you do to motivate your sales teams to get out there and make the most of the accounts they've got? Okay. Um, yeah, and indeed, you know, sign new ones. Well, whilst we have made those acquisitions, as I mentioned, the, the matting business to begin with, then Lewis Abbott, followed by Heat Seam Factory Flooring, H&V, Valley and, and Delta. But we shouldn't underestimate within that 150 million run rate that we've now got, a big proportion of that is new startups that we've done. Starting in 2019, we established likewise Southeast, where four people wanted to join us on this journey. So we took a, a team of people to develop that business. We followed that. Sorry, just staying on Likewise Southeast, that's because we had capacity in, in Sudbury and where the matting business is housed. So we started that business up. We then had capacity, what was then in Dewsbury now is in Leeds, where we established Likewise North, where again, well, five key individuals joined us. And then not long after that, Likewise Northeast in Newcastle, where four key individuals joined us. Mm. And then in Scotland, we did the same. And again, I'm going to say five individuals joined us. Each of those established their business. Then more recently, we've established uh, Likewise Midlands in Birmingham. And that's now a team of 10 people. It wasn't 10 to start with, to be fair, but a group of people joined us. Then last year as well, we started Likewise South, where four people joined. And we're about to launch Likewise Wales with three people. So all of those have have contributed to our growth over the last three years or so. Right. So there's there's still a, uh, even though it, it perhaps might look to the outside observer that there's there's just a, been a lot of acquisitions there's still a ton of organic growth going on in the background which is now going to start pushing the business forward as well that's absolutely and we're now up to 82 people who are focused on customers product service in terms of 22 managers that are very much customer facing and as i touched on in the early part of this interview they've learned their trade in the flooring industry pretty much all of them have started on a trade counter in a warehouse 
They understand how the logistics work. They understand the IT. They've got relationships with the manufacturers. They obviously understand the product dynamics and very importantly, have the customer relationship. And those 22 managers alongside those are 60 external salespeople and they're incentivized on a monthly basis to grow their business, to be hitting their targets. Probably 25% of their income is probably uh, bonus related on a monthly basis and they're you know incentivized you know to develop their their customer base whether that be new customers low trading customers and um, but that's what they're actively doing you know day in day out just just on that point tony when i've heard you talk about your business you're the largest single shareholder i think in likewise today and the chief executive but when you talk about the business, you always immediately go to talking about the team. There is a vast amount of experience there that you've harnessed in a relatively short period of time. What are the secrets of putting a quality team together and how how much of it does emanate from you? You know, what are the sort of structure are you putting in place? How many people report to you and how or how decentralized is this business? Of course, key colleagues that have joined us, Andrew Simpson, who's kind of semi-retired, but we've worked together for many years and we're kind of the co-founders of the business. Uh, there's Adrian Laffey and, and James Keller to join us. Uh, Tony Judge has been a key part of it. And Tony and I, after Andrew retired, ran Headlam together for a number of years, know intuitively what each other are thinking almost and what we're doing. And that's been key then to bringing the next tier of management in and the relationship that we've got with them over many years, you know, working together. And I think it's fair to say that the managers that have joined us, you know, have joined us because they wanted to be on this journey. That you know, not because we've given them huge golden lows, we haven't. They've this. They've got share options, um, and hopefully benefit from the future success of the business. But in terms of their salaries, they've joined us same salary because they wanted to be with us on this journey. And when when you've acquired the businesses you've acquired, is it a case of saying to the people you're buying these businesses from, "Thanks very much. We'll take it from here. Off you go." Or is it, "How do I incentivize you to carry on doing what you're doing?" I'm assuming it's a mix of both. It, it is a mixture yeah. because if we take the acquisitions, then in a number of cases, people wanted to retire or do other things. Um, if yeah. you take Lewis Abbott, it was certainly retirement. Uh, heat seen factory flooring was because the, the owner wanted to do other things. Delta was definitely retirement, where it was owned equally by four individuals, and they subsequently retired. They did a handover for a couple of months as required, and one a little bit longer. And he's actually just stepping away from the business now from a sales role. Um, so in some cases but that was only in part of the business Val is a slightly unusual one where the founder had passed the business on to his son and daughter who we have technically bought it from uh, they've now fully exited the, the son particularly helped with the handover as did the daughter for a period of time as well but the father the founder still works in the business and he's an integral part of what Valley does alongside Simon Miller, who's uh, been with the business for 16 years, but he was with us previously in a Headlam subsidiary. And as I say, Dave Mitchell, the founder, is, is still there on a, a three-day-a-week, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. If we take what we class as the likewise-branded businesses, then about a third of sales revenue is with flooring contractors in the commercial sector. So whether that be in typically refurbishment, whether that be in education or, or the health sector, 
A third of the business is, is with contractors. And then the two thirds is with independent flooring retailers, typically. Uh, yes, we have some business with some of the multiples, but our main driver day in, day out is the independent flooring retailer. And as I've said, furnishing them with this point of sale, having the latest products yeah. literally on a daily basis. That's a key part of our salespeople role is selling new products into retailers, the features and benefits of product, making sure display stands are addressed correctly and that we the retailer is unable to sell onto the consumer. So I suppose that's a that's a key part of the sort of research that I, that led me to to, to you and your, your career is is investigating why there are so many of these little mum and pop stores that, that persist for, for often generations. And, and what I realized is there's, there's this huge, logist, incredibly efficient, incredibly powerful buying machine behind these retailers so that when you go into the shop, you can you can see all these wonderful SKUs, but they get them, get them to you on time at the lowest price uh, and exactly when you want it. You know your your business effectively makes these these really really quite effective little little mom and pop stores able to compete with these larger retailers and and in fact uh, I think if anyone's ever sort of shopped for a carpet you'll you'll realize that you get the best prices and the most flexibility when you go to these smaller stores and the reason is that wonderful complex logistic machine that is yeah. likewise and, and and associated businesses and that, and that was a that was a sort of key insight that I didn't realise in the industry. Yeah. And James, I, what I'd emphasise there is that when we talk about service, it's not taking an order today and delivering the following working day. It's everything that's built into that service. It's those, you know, the barrier to entry for a floor covering retailer is very low. We will supply sample books and yes display stands we'd want a contribution from the retailer but sample books we're placing free of charge we're putting out hundreds of thousands of those in the year hmm. which allows you know gives the, that point of sale for the retailer of as i've said the latest products competitively priced with a huge stock holding to support that you know over yeah. 20 million pounds worth of stock that's the key to the service proposition it's not just about taking an order today and delivering it next day hmm. it's about the whole chain of of having that product available through the point of sale and supporting yeah. it through the stockholding you know and there's there is logistics challenges you know i've said a lot of our residential product comes from western europe and, and the largest carpet producer outside of north america is based in holland and you know residential vinyl we buy from western europe as well but then if we we take obviously turkey the further away you go that has logistics challenges with it we, i was involved in a container being stuck earlier this week and we had to to try and get that released and organised. These things happen. And then you go further afield, I was discussing with one of our managers before this call, a container coming in from South Korea. Once you start going into China and Korea and, and Vietnam for luxury vinyl tile artificial grass, yes, it has its supply chain challenges which we need to manage, but we've got people in the business to do that. And then another another key insight, I mean, it's it, again, it'll seem rather rudimentary, but during a project, you know, small or large, if the flooring doesn't turn up on time, it costs the contractor and the client a lot of money because you can't store a roll of carpet anywhere on site, really. It's, it's big, it's bulky, it gets wet, it's ruined. So if the flooring doesn't get there on time, it delays all those other bits of the, the project that need to happen and the fit out and so on that rely on the flooring being in it. And so you've got to manage all this great big supply chain, all these SKUs across the country and all these warehouses, and you've got to get it there on time, and then you've got to fix it if it doesn't get there on time. And and, and like you say, it's it's that that service element. Which Tony, does it does it sort of um, foster a sense of loyalty between you and some of your customers if you get it right? Yeah, I think there's, there is a lot of loyalty, and, and I've talked about the the people that have joined us. 
And, you know, those customers have wanted to do business with us as well because, again, people have relationships, you know, very importantly across the country with those key customers. And I think it's very fair to say that there's a number of customers that are shareholders. Um, oh, right. Okay. That's interesting. Quite <laughs> encouraging, but um, I'm sure they're probably more demanding or as demanding. But anyway, but the, but the, there is a degree of customer loyalty. But yes, if you do something wrong, you can upset that, that loyalty quite quickly. And yep. it's very important to be competitively priced and have that service. Um, we, you know, we've put a network together in the likewise businesses you know, where we're moving product around at night as well to be able to give that customer service. So trunk of vehicles are going from Leeds to Newcastle and to Glasgow every night and then from Birmingham to Sudbury to Sidcup to Newbury and soon to Newport, again, enhancing that customer proposition. Right. So uh, coming back to the um, some of the organic sort of openings you've got, you mentioned Wales. When you sort of set up a sort of greenfield site, for want of a better phrase, what is the competitor reaction? What, what are the what is the existing infrastructure that you have to compete with? What do they do? How do they react? And 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 how do you ultimately, you know, persuade customers to join you who've been with somebody else for many years? Well, I think the first thing is going back to that relationship that the management locally and the sales representatives and sales executives have got with the with the customers is key. We are not going into the market to undercut anybody, but we are positioning product cost effectively. You know, we, we don't know what price particularly our competitors are going to sell certain products at if it's the same or similar product. You know, we buy the product. Yes, of course, we negotiate with the supplier and we have a strong loyalty with our supplier base as well. We don't move from one supplier to another for different products. You know, that they're, they're relationships we've had for many years, but we get that product into the market cost effectively you know, because you know, we believe we're buying well and we're selling competitively and that obviously enhances that customer relationship because they need to compete also in the marketplace whether it be you know independent competitors or or multiples sure on that on that point if i just jump in there you've spoken about having sight of this 200 million pound revenue target is is there something magic about 200 million in terms of the terms on which you can get from your suppliers or is that just is it just a number that will become a bigger number in due course it is just a number because i think with the acquisition of valley that took us comfortably through the 100 million heading for 150 which is broadly where we are now in certainly on an annualized basis with the upward trajectory and 200 million is a natural next target and i believe we can go well through that but i think also because of the infrastructure we've put in place i mean we've quoted that specifically cutting capacity and that's cut lengths of carpet residential vinyl we're at about 60 percent with the investment we've made and to qualify that is that we've uh, only opened scotland a couple of months ago so Scotland capacity is not really being utilised at all. We're probably at 15%-ish of Scotland's capacity. If we think about two cutting shifts, doing 300 cut lengths a shift is broadly where we would be. So there's 600 cut lengths in Scotland. In Leeds, we are fairly full. There are ways of increasing that capacity potentially. But in Birmingham, we have just gone to the second shift to increase the capacity there. And to explain a shift, that's typically six people, either bringing carpet to the cutting table, controlling the cutting table or the wrapping, and taking product away from the cutting table. And the cutting tables are large, five metre wide. The length depends on the number of what we call sortation bins, without getting too technical. 
going back to capacity in Valley in Erith, we have some capacity, but we're fairly getting fairly full on three cutting tables there, working a total of six shifts. In Derby, we've invested over a million pounds in extending the distribution centre there, putting extra racking in and putting a cutting table in, which is currently not being used. So at some point, of course, that gives us extra capacity in the Valley business. Again, if you think of that ratio of 300 cut lengths per shift. So Erith, of course, capacity is circa 1,800. Um, we're not quite there, but getting close. And that's why we put that release valve effectively into Derby to be able to cut. And that 60% does not allow it. If at some point, we wanted to put a cutting table into Newport. We obviously could do. And just something to pick up there where I've given you the locations around the country is that we own four of the premises. The other seven are leased, but we own freehold of Sudbury, Erith, Derby and Newport, which amounts to I believe 22.3 million is the current valuation with only a small amount of debt against one of those properties. So I think when we talk about the balance sheet, where we've got uh, net assets overall of around 40 million, over 50% of that is freehold property, principally unencumbered. So on that topic, if we talk a little bit about valuation, so you mentioned you've got about £40 million of assets, net book value, uh, mostly backed by property and, and readily realisable inventory. The market cap at the moment, roughly speaking, is, is about £40 million as well. Is that is that correct? Correct, yes. Right. So that's, uh, for me, as a, as, a, as a sort of fairly frugal value investor, that's a, that's a really good starting point for an investment, I'd say. If we if we sort of look at the the profit and loss account, you you mentioned you you drop all these anecdotes about the future and being much bigger. I suppose that means that there's a lot of investment going in ahead of the the, the revenue, right? So if we look at the P and L, it surely it must be obscured slightly by that the, the cost you're putting in for the future. So absolutely, so- only two of the sites of the eleven were with us, you know, two and a half years ago. We've put a lot of capacity into the business, and that's not nowhere near being fully utilised. And as we to get the operational gearing, that's why we want to push that sales revenue up towards the 200 million. And then the return on sales should look distinctly different from where it is today, where we're carrying a lot of cost in the business for the future. So if you, I mean, I I had you at a, a 130, 140 million sales run rate. Let's say there's a little bit of weakness this year and you're down at that, that level. I don't know. This isn't a forecast or anything like that. This is just a, a hypothetical conversation. If you if you decided you, you didn't want to go for the growth, what would be the, the right sort of underlying operating margin for the business at a 130, 140 million pound run rate of revenue? I think looking at another way, the, we're really targeting an operating margin of five to six percent. Right. Okay. Um, and I think because we've put an infrastructure in place, it's difficult to say if we suddenly turn the tables and said, right, we're not going to grow anymore. We're going to focus on profitability. That is yeah. not a strategy. But if, if we did, yeah. then it would be a challenge to get to that level because obviously we've got a cost base in the business, just in property and overall infrastructure. We, yeah. we need to have a bigger business, to be fair. Yeah. So uh, I my... ask that question the other way. When you're at 200 million on the current invested capital, do you reach those sort of metrics? Yeah, I think it's circa 5% is probably the right number to think about. It depends how fast we get to 200 million, because quite obviously, if we invest more and grow faster, then the yeah. 5% might not quite meet the 200 million. I, I suppose in a, in a slightly odd way, 
for a long-term investor, you want to see margins low for a while, don't you? Because that means that there's a you and your management team can see this wonderful sort of glide path to even greater scale and even better profits in the future. So I suppose just to, to sort of square the circle on that valuation piece, if because I've looked at uh, other businesses in the sector, some of which that are less ef- efficient than likewise, I would say, who do make you know a five percent margin. If if you were to to say that current run rate, steady state margin was around five percent, that that would that would give you I don't know maybe four or five million pounds of profit after tax, which would mean likewise is currently on sort of eight times earnings, which is, again, for a, a, a sort of frugal and value, value investor, a great start. You don't even need growth for this to be a, a great investment, but you do have growth that's that's clear and present. And so that's really quite an exciting time for the business and certainly a, a, an interesting point for the shares. Um, so can I, at that point, can I just ask a question for both of you, really, how you think about that, what James has just said, and how Tony has talked around this subject in the context of what is a very volatile consumer environment, a housing market that is being disrupted affected massively by sharply rising interest rates and the cost of living crisis obviously affecting we are talking about a cyclical industry i think we view it that um you know if we think of a floor cleaning market at circa two billion pounds if that market is is down at a percentage uh, there's still a huge market for us to go for given our size so if it's down 10 percent, let's call it it's 1.8 billion for us to go at and that's that's what we're tasked with day in day out you know, undoubtedly, you know, over the last four years, there have been various challenges. You know, first of all, COVID, with the business being closed for a period. And then as we came out of COVID, pent up consumer demand and, and savings that allowed, you know, household refurbishment because people couldn't do the normal things, go on holiday, etc. So they start renovating their, their property and there was yeah. a huge amount. And so 2021 undoubtedly benefited from that ups, upturn and we saw that in various businesses. But then as just, we go just in, to put that 10% in context, how what, what was, was the rate of the market decline over the global financial crisis? So 08, 09, 2010? Ooh, I guess it was towards 20%, I would have thought. Okay, right. Okay. But, um, go, going back to, you know, 21 w- would have been a good year and we, we thought we could see that in a business like Valley, and we see it in, in as the likewise business will grow. Going into 22, undoubtedly, with all the challenges, of course, you know, sad, very sadly, the Ukraine war and the knock on effect of that energy costs, whether that be input cost in industry or energy costs relative to consumer spending. And then more recently, obviously, interest rates, house moves slowing. It is a challenging market in the last 18 months, no doubt about that. So I think fair to say if the market had been more helpful in 22 and 23 we would be much further forward now than we are but i'd still say there's a big market for us to go at our competitors are shipping floor covering products every day you know we've just got to be sharper at getting our our share and increasing our share of the market so so i'm uh obviously i have a vested interest here (laughs) you know i I, i've drank the kool-aid on tony and, and his team um, so I'll try and be as you know independent-minded and objective as possible with this. But I suppose um, I have the luxury of being very long-term investor. So I'm looking for you know the best investments are the ones you never have to sell. And so I can, when I'm thinking about businesses, I can look through the cycle. And so I I'm I'm not really too scared about a, a year where volumes might be down 20%, especially in in an industry like flooring. 
because there's there's certain industries where demand goes and it never comes back in in the sense that people didn't go out for meals during covid you know they, they, they there was a lot less opportunity to do so because the businesses were closed they didn't go and have 15 meals for a month as soon as the restaurants opened yeah. did they those those meals were gone and that that revenue was lost but with things like flooring you know at some point, even if someone says, oh, actually, that carpet will last another year, it needs to be replaced at some point. So you get this wonderful wave after a cycle where there's all this catch-up spending. So you made, you, I think you made exactly the same point about champagne, champagne con- consumption in the last the last time we spoke, James. <laughs> yes. Well, that's, um, that's a slightly different product and a different <laughs> consumer set. So, <laughs> um, But but yeah, so there's this 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 catch up which happens, and, and it happens with a lot of the building trade. And, and the the really odd thing is, I mean, I'm I'm effectively still a, a child. You know, I've I've only been through two or three market cycles in my career, depending on how you you classify them. But it always surprises me how um, the headlines and the, the the people in the in, in the investment industry that I speak to how they they always speak about the cycle like it's never going to end, like it's it doesn't bounce back every time. Uh, and and so I, I'm not too too worried about it, especially when you look at the, uh, in the context of, of likewise, you look at the balance sheet. The balance sheet's absolutely solid. They've got a lot of liquidity there. And you can see that in, in their actions that, that Tony and his team aren't worried about it because what are they doing? They're allocating that capital counter-cyclically. They're looking for opportunities in the milestrome to add value for shareholders while competitors might be retrenching or you know, jacking their prices up or, or whatever it might be. So I suppose I like the industry because it's simple and easy to understand and I'm a simple man. I like it because, you know, um, you get cycles and people run for the hills and you get opportunities in the shares like I think we do have at the moment. Likewise, and then I like it because it's got a tried and tested management team who, are, who seem to be incredibly passionate about the, the journey they're on, which feels like it's only just at the beginning. You've clearly had experience of the life of a PLC previously. You listed likewise on AIM, I think it was only two years ago. Yeah, 2000. Yeah, that's correct. What's your experience been in terms of, and you know, just how have you found it coming back into the listed arena in terms of attracting investor interest? Clearly you've done a great job with James attracting investor interest and what using the market for what it's there for which is to raise capital for growing businesses sure so and exactly we i think if we'd have gone into the banking system as a small company we wouldn't would not have been able to raise the capital that we've been able to through the the markets but it's allowed us to move much faster than i think otherwise we would have been with a small company you know trying to raise um, bank debt you know, we've had you know great support from from a handful of institutional shareholders. I think you know we have this you know, situation where probably there's a lot of even small cap funds are not looking at things under 100 million market cap. That seems to be a particular threshold. And when you get to 100 cap, it'll be 200 million. Probably. <laughs> I, th- I think I might have t- said this to you before, Tony, but uh, whenever I see him, I always say, don't worry about the city. They don't know how to run a flooring business. Just just do the right thing for your customers. Do the right thing for your staff. Keep growing. Keep keep growing profitably and you'll get the shareholders you deserve. That's a that's a sort of buffetism. And I think that's what's what's happening here. And, and that's what happens in cyclical businesses. You get this shakeout where the people without the stomach or without the right time horizon, they um, they leave and then you get some shareholders that turn up that do get the long-term story so sure. yeah yes. and i think no, I, you know to be fair I, I was always taught that um look after the business yeah and the share price will look after itself i know that's subject to market and ratings but fundamentally look after the the business first that's that's got to be the priority 
you talk about the business in a lot of detail. That's the thing I always get from you, down to like knowing what bad bad debt numbers are at different customers. <laughs> so what do you what is a typical day for you? Because it doesn't sound like you sit in an ivory tower. Are you driving around lots? Are you sort of giving everyone a headache about how tidy warehouses are? What what, what does it look like for you? Well, I'm certainly not an ivory tower because I have a a, a table in uh, in Birmingham, um, in the Birmingham distribution centre there, which is uh, I'm I'm there probably one or two days a week. Right. Um, then I'm typically in the other business, the businesses. So I was in um, Leeds and Manchester this week. I was in Erith also this week. Uh, I saw a, a, a customer yesterday. Um, so a variety of things. I was last week. I was with principal supplier in Holland and a, another supplier in Holland. Um, a couple of weeks time, I'm going to Turkey for to see um, a variety of suppliers there. You know, it's about that close contact with our people. Next week, I'm in, in Glasgow and uh, seeing some investors as well. So that kind of cross-section. I think there's a balance with, with the investment community. Obviously, we've got to keep in touch with them. But yeah. it's certainly not for me to be spending two days a week in London. Um, no, 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 no. That would be a bad sign. <laughs> yeah, but it's about being in the, the businesses and suppliers. Given what you've just said then, you're clearly not a young man and you started, I think you said in 1977, so you're probably a similar age to me, possibly even a bit older, dare I say. You finished your last job, you know, at the time most people of our age would probably be thinking about their golf handicap more than starting a new business. Is there something that you've got to prove to yourself or somebody else or something that you wanted to improve on from what you've done in the past what, what what is it that's put you into this position um i think it's a combination that i, I enjoy what i do yeah like a nice holiday occasionally and a nice weekend away but i enjoy what i do and i don't think playing golf or whatever else i have, do have six grandchildren mind you with three daughters but um Congratulations. Uh, you know, it is it is about enjoying the business and enjoying working with the people. I think that's the key, whether it be people in our business or particularly suppliers across the globe, that's the enjoyment part. And it was, you know, a case that a number of people wanted the opportunity to come on this journey. And I mentioned across the country where people have joined us, we've helped facilitate that, I think it's fair to say, whilst growing a business at the same time. Who's your hero in the the flooring trade? Internationally, it could be anybody. Well, Graham Waldron, undoubtedly. Waldron, right. And that's the, did he um, did he hire you? Sorry, who was he? Yes. He, he was your predecessor at Headlam, or well, Graham Waldron founded MCD uh, Midland. Then I joined in seventy seven. Uh, his colleague actually interviewed me, but Graham was there at the time, and he's been my mentor um, through my business career. So sadly, he passed away a couple of years ago, but um, undoubtedly, he's my mentor hero. Graham really took a stake in Headlam at the time, 22%, I think I'm right in saying. And Ian and I developed a business with him. I think it was Graham's credibility in the in the city and also with the suppliers that allowed us to then grow Headlam. And I think it's fair to say that say it was Graham's credibility. It was Ian's ability in the city to be able to raise money to grow Headlam. And it was myself, Andrew, Tony Judge and other people that ran the business. That's how it, how it worked. And then Ian stepped away in 2000. Let's, let's call it a disagreement over strategy, which I think it gen, genuinely was. And that's sometimes used as a cliche. And we'd built up a, roughly a third of Headlam was in um, textile businesses, which 
started to underperform for a variety of reasons. And when Ian left, we then sold those textile businesses, uh, which were typically in curtaining and upholstery fabric, and then continued to build Headland as a floor covering distribution business until I left in 2016. So really, putting likewise together, you just wanted to keep the band together or put the band back together, sounds to me, what you're saying. Yeah, there is, there is a degree of that for sure. If uh, Tony, if you, if you weren't doing likewise now, what do you think you'd be doing? Difficult to say. Probably. When I first left Headlam, I got involved in a business in South Africa, which is actually where the Likewise name comes from. And that was with a, a gentleman called Stefan Collar, who has a worldwide floor covering interest. And he wanted some help to sort some business out in South Africa, which I went and did. And I was going there every other week for three years. I've, I've totally exited that business now because as obviously Likewise in the UK has got larger then it needed my full attention and has done since pretty much COVID. Prior to COVID, I was involved in South Africa. And I was also doing some consultancy work in that period for other floor covering businesses. And I guess if I hadn't developed likewise, I would probably be doing that, I guess. Yeah, it's it's clear you have uh, an enormous passion for it. Uh, and also you're very good at it. Thank you both very much for spending the time today and I look forward to catching up with both of you in the not-too-distant future. Great. Thank you. Thanks, both. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, please press subscribe to get future episodes.